I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Wuthering Heights is over. I cannot live without my life. I cannot die without my soul. Don't you see what he's been doing? He's been using you to be near me, to smile at me behind your back, to try to rouse something in my heart that's dead. You can't. Heathcliff's not a man, but something dark and horrible to live with. Do you imagine, Catherine, that I don't know why you're acting so? Because you love him. Oh, Heathcliff, you must not do this villainous thing. She hasn't harmed you. You have. Then punish me. I'm going to. When I take her in my arms, when I kiss her, when I promise her life and happiness. Oh, Heathcliff, if there's anything human left in you, don't do this. Oh, Heathcliff, why won't you let me come near you? You're not black and horrible as they all think. You're full of pain. I can make you happy. Let me try. You won't regret it. I'll be your slave. I can bring life back to you, new and fresh. All you have to do is to shoot. They'll thank me for it. The whole world will say I did right in ridding it of a rotten gypsy beggar. Yes, they'll say that. Shoot and you'll be master here again. The whole county will resound with your courage, Hindley. Go on, shoot your puling chicken of a man with not enough blood in your veins to keep your hands steady. Hey, listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. We just need more weathering and then we'll be, we'll be home. There needs to be more weathering in general in this podcast. Did you know what weathering meant before this? No. No. Did you? Are you a big... Do you use it? I don't think I've ever heard you use it. I've never used it, but I, I didn't know what weathering was. And I just... Wuthering Heights. It was just always tied into heights. Yeah. But it actually is just... Uh, it comes from the Old Norse and means roaring like the wind on a stormy day. Yeah. And, in fact... It is the name of the property. Right. For those who haven't read it or seen the movie, zzz, the name of the house, Weathering Heights. And boy, does it seem lonely out there on the moors. It's them. And uh, what is the name of the property next door? It is the uh, you, the th- thrush cross thrush thrush <laughs> thrush cross grange. Yes. Thrush cross. <laughs> Thrush cross grange. Now, I have a confession. Uh, We both committed to reading the books of these, at least these last couple, and I haven't finished Weathering Heights. It's so hard, Andy. But you've started it. Yes. Yeah, I think I'm I'm more than halfway. And it's so hard. And I'm relieved that we're actually doing the movie. Because then maybe, I don't know if it'll ever get finished. (laughs) I'm just sort of tired of it. I found that uh, Emily Bronte's writing style is not for me. Yes. It was a challenging read. I had a difficult time uh, getting through it. And 
you know, I don't know. I just, it's an interesting story in that it has become so popular and it remains incredibly, incredibly popular, this, this story that she wrote. But it's, it is, I don't know. I find it interesting because it is such a challenging story. It is definitely like this gothic drama about fairly despicable characters and it's one of these stories that it's kind of hard to connect with anybody because they're just not great people and i guess the book has been considered con- uh, controversial over, you know off and on through its history for its depictions of mental this is off wikipedia for its depictions of mental and physical cruelty including domestic abuse and for its challenges to victorian morality religion and the class system so those Bronte sisters really held the corner for challenging culture and class. I didn't know. Is she, does she have sisters? I don't know the Bronte sisters, I guess. Oh, yes. Yes, she does have sisters. Her sisters are Charlotte Bronte and Anne Bronte, who's the youngest. Okay, that's right. Uh, for some reason, sometimes I think I, I say Jane Eyre was also written by Emily Bronte. I just hear Bronte and just, yes. It, that's but other, other Bronte. We call yes. them other Bronte. Yeah. <laughs> It's a collective. Emily was the second youngest of the four surviving Bronte siblings. Yeah. yeah. Three sisters and her brother, Branwell. Branwell, who, as far as I know, was not a writer. Ah, gotcha. So, anyway, this was, that. that's, uh, that's Emily, and, and Emily and her sisters. And I, so the movie, in terms of how the movie hits you, and I feel like having done part of the book and then jumped into the movie. The problem that I have with the movie is that I just don't think this movie was made for me. <laughs> it's just, as you say, none of the characters are necessarily likable. I don't necessarily feel like the weird love triangle plays out completely in the story. And in terms of an epic family gothic romance novel, the movie cuts out a lot of the story from the book, right? It's like effectively, I think, half of the book because we we're missing an entire next generation uh, of uh, characters. And so um, I just found myself really struggling to to connect with anyone and feel an affinity with anyone in this movie in such a way that I was I was rooting for them. There was no real sort of um, I, I had no real interest in in resolution for anyone. You know, it's interesting. I before I read the book, I actually started my experience with um, Emily Bronte's story by watching Andrea Arnold's 2011 adaptation with uh, Kaya Scodelario and James Housen. And uh, that was one... I haven't seen that one either, so... Yeah, well, it's definitely... It felt more in line with trying to make something that was more gothic, less romantic, because that one, (laughs) kind of like the book, it's hard to like anybody in in that adaptation. And I'm like, wow, this is a very challenging story. And so that was my first dip into the world of Wuthering Heights and Heathcliff and Kathy and all of that. And I was like, okay, this is this is difficult. Maybe maybe I'll like the book more, which I also really struggled with. 
Because, as you said, you're following Heathcliff largely, but it's over several generations. You've got Heathcliff who falls for Catherine, and then she ends up marrying Edgar because they have money and, and Heathcliff doesn't, even though she really does love Heathcliff. And then she ends up having a kid with Edgar. Uh, Heathcliff ends up marrying Edgar's sister, Isabella, kind of in the book, at least, out of spite and she, and to kind of create jealousy with Catherine. Catherine ends up dying of a kind of a broken heart, but she's, she's just had a baby. And then uh, Heathcliff and Isabella have a baby, plus Catherine's brother Hindley had had a baby with his uh, wife, Frances, in the book. So that you have those three kids dealing with kind of Heathcliff uh, later in life as they grow up and then and they start falling in love and there's this love triangle between those three. And so the, there's a lot more to the story. And then we kind of end the story with Heathcliff finally dying of a, a broken heart. And um, it does kind of have a similar sort of thing where it doesn't really kind of go off into the heavens with the two of them, uh, you know, Heathcliff and Catherine finally reunited in heaven, but it does kind of feel that way, like he might have finally found peace in death. Um, but it's just, it's there is a lot of stuff going on in the book that we just, uh, I, I don't know, I think it makes it challenging. We were talking about this in our pre-show chat for members about kind of the challenges of adapting some books, and, and we we walked through a number of them. But in this particular case, you can see why they probably chop a lot of that out, because it makes it hard to tell two. It's almost like two complete stories, but there's so many parallels in the book. And I think that's kind of what they uh, what Bronte was was trying to do. And I think in the film version, it just makes it hard. And then it's like it even it waters down even more uh, the fact that you're supposed to be really following Heathcliff as your protagonist. And so. Um, but Heathcliff is such a Did you a ever difficult... find yourself forgetting that you were supposed to be following Heathcliff? <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I don't... I mean, it's it's just, it's interesting to see how they end up adapting it. And what I found most interesting with this adaptation, I think I ended up liking this more than you did, is because they move away a little bit from kind of just the gothic drama of it all, and they actually build a little bit more of the romance between Heathcliff and Catherine. So by the time... And, you know, I definitely agree with you that... It's hard to see all the time. They don't do it completely successfully. But as we get toward that last act and we have kind of a lot more kind of those heavy, dramatic, romantic moments between Heathcliff and Catherine as she's coming close to death and all of that. And like we finally start getting some more of that romance that actually made it a little more satisfying for me, actually, than the book or the 2011 version of it. So in a, in a way, yeah, yeah, it just surprised me that I... I, I ended up walking away from this going, oh, okay, well, I guess I liked that. That was fine. Yeah, I, I actually am curious how that part of the book ends, because I didn't get there, right? Like I, to how, you know, when she gets closer to she, she's st is still around where I am. And so, like, it, it doesn't share the same sort of, you know, bedside passion. Where, I guess I don't know how far along you are. Well, far enough along to know that they haven't. We haven't had any bedside passion at, and Heathcliff on her bedside. Well, there's not really passion in the book. I don't know. It's it's a difficult way to kind of describe it in the book. But in the book, she gets pregnant uh, with Edgar's child, has the baby, but then she kind of falls sick, and you know, meanwhile. You know, Heathcliff yeah. has been married to Isabella, but Heathcliff does come to her bedside in the book 
as she is dying, and he is there as she dies, just as she as he is in this film version. It's just not quite as romantically portrayed as it is in the film. It's it's you know he is there because they they really are kind of these soulmates that are meant to be together as much conflict as they have in in life. But um, hmm. yeah, it, and then. Uh, but then that kind of drives him away. It's a whole thing. But yeah, it, it that's really the midpoint of the book, really, is her death. Yeah, and I feel like I'm on the cusp of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I've got to be, it's got to be coming. It's dragging. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm struggling for her. Please just die. Like, now that I've seen the movie, let's just move along. But again, it, that, that goes to say they cut a lot of of the book. I feel like, I feel like I'm coming up to the end of the movie in the book. And um, so... You know, there's that. In terms of the the adaptation of characters, right? Well, let's can we talk about Olivier as Heathcliff? Because before we watched this movie, before I watched this movie, you had told me that part of the controversy was that Lawrence Olivier over overplays his dramatic hand in this movie as Heathcliff. What did you think of Heathcliff? It's big, and there was definitely. Um, I mean, Olivier had been acting in films. Uh, before this, but this was really kind of a point where there was this shift for him, and it it led to a lot of drama on the set because he was acting so big, and uh, William Wyler was uh, a director who was really not going to kind of take that, and I guess there were a few points where, um, I, I think one where I, I can't remember. I'm trying to find the line here, but um, Olivier was just acting so big, and Weiler was telling him to kind of, uh, you know, bring it down, and you don't need to be so big, something like that. And Olivier had this big diatribe about the nonsense of of the the smallness of film, something like that, and was trying to kind of create this, you know, this this moment about how how. Uh, film was so little and theater was so big and when he finished i guess like everyone on set laughed at him as, as to what he had to say and that was kind of a lesson for him that he needed to um maybe not be quite so uh obnoxious yeah old lawrence read the room olivier yeah right <laughs> so it took some time for him to kind of figure it out but he you know later in life he definitely said uh that it was really weiler that kind of taught him how to be a screen actor as opposed to a stage actor. And it, it sounded like over time, he really ended up learning quite a bit from him. Well, in comparing the performances of Olivier and David Niven as uh, old Edgar is, uh, I think, a, a really interesting lesson because I think David Niven is such an understated performer. And he's probably overstated given his given who he ends up being over the arc of his career. But in this movie, he he feels particularly understated in comparison to Laurence Olivier, who feels to me to character overwrought. It did not, that part of it did not take me out of the movie. I do enjoy watching these guys on screen in this movie, right? Like, even though I say, and I stand by this part, that it, the movie was not necessarily made for me, but I do enjoy their performances on, on screen. And, uh, yeah. and, and I didn't find myself taken out by anything, you know, cr anything I would criticize as Lawrence Olivier is overacting. I, I, he is a dramatic actor and he does that. He is what you get from Olivier is written on the tin. It's, it is, that's his brand. And I enjoy that. He is a powerful, big performer. And I thought he was great. 
Well, and it fits, and as you said, like it fits so well with the nature of who Heathcliff is. Heathcliff haunted. Heathcliff, yeah. not just haunted, but I mean Heathcliff. You know, he's brought into the house by Dad as this. Uh, I mean, in the book, he's kind of described as I can't remember, like as like a gypsy child or something, just like living on the streets. And so he's wild. He's brash. He doesn't hold back, and. And he just like everything that he does is big. And that works so well with Olivier as a performer. Like it just fit to a T with everything that he brought to the screen and to his performance. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I, I I came away thinking, OK, I think maybe those the criticisms of overacting Olivier might be overwrought. For me, he was great. But talking about Isabella and Kathy, we have Kathy uh, Merle Oberon and uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald as Isabella. By the same token, I, you know, I I feel like that you could lodge parallel criticisms for the two of them. Uh, Although I felt like if anybody was overacting a little bit, it would have been Geraldine Fitzgerald. Again, didn't take me out of the movie, but she was a very big character. Yeah, but, you know, I guess and this is why I think that this film ended up largely working for me, because it does feel like this kind of big, broad romance sort of story. When you have a big character like Heathcliff, it works to kind of have the people to play off of in the forms of Kathy and Isabella. And Merle Oberon, I thought, was great as Kathy when she was younger and a little more wild and brash. And then as she kind of tries to rein that in because she wants to live the better life, and which is why she marries Edgar. And you can see that come through. But she always seems to have that draw back to him. And I thought that worked well. And Geraldine Fitzgerald, I mean, we just talked about her at the beginning of this season in Dark Victory because she is, of course, um, Betty Davis's. Uh, <laughs> housekeeper, best friend, you know, uh, kind of at home liver, like the person who does everything for her at uh, your personal phone, assistant. phone answer. Right. Yes. Um, but she was great in that film and she was big in this film and, and she needed, we needed to kind of have, I don't know, I guess for, for, for me, she ended up feeling like the audience surrogate, like this is somebody through whose, through whom's eyes we can <laughs> kind of see, a side of Heathcliff Edgar would never see, and Kathy. Kathy was kind of denying, but she was the person who could see that there is this side to him that you could love, and that there was this this draw to him. And so, through that, I ended up saying, you know what? It's it's I I, I liked what she was doing here. She was giving us a sense of a chance to connect, uh, a more of a chance to connect with Heathcliff that we really needed in this story. Yeah, I think so, too. And her, you know, if if you're going to feel for anyone in this movie, if you're going to connect to anyone, like her turn at discovering love in Heathcliff is going to be the thing to do it, right? It's like, oh, she's going to be the romantic target for for us as an audience. I you know, I, I like calling her the audience surrogate for this movie because that's she's where our, our heart lives as we're watching this thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The the other thing I wanted to bring up, though, is the framing device. Now, obviously, the framing device exists in the book where, you know, oh, yeah. we have this the guy and he he comes. Uh, he's he's a leaseholder on the property next door. He gets trapped there. He gets sick in the book is much more of it. Like there's he gets sick. He comes up and it's cold and they take care of him. And then we have Ellen who tells him the story of the family and the, thus the drama begins. Speaking to adaptations, at any point did you feel like in the film 
that was a necessary conceit. Well, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And because, I mean, that's uh, that is definitely a huge part of the story in the fact that, you know, Mr. Lockwood comes here and is told this story by Ellen, the housekeeper. And that's another reason that the novel is is touted so much, because it's it's a story of perspectives and who is telling the story and, and like, are they putting their own spin on it? And when the story is coming from Ellen, as opposed to like the, the diaries, it, it certainly feels perhaps she is telling it a little more her own way and so there's there is a read in the in this in the book that that has that kind of tone to it that we don't get at all in the film and to your point it's like what is the benefit of having any of that here by having the story other than to like make it a little more clear that this is the adaptation of the story you know and i i'm trying to remember i think i'm trying to remember in the andrea arnold adaptation if she even bothered with that like i think she may have uh completely dropped that framing device which um yeah i i guess there's that element of that that she probably realized as she was adapting it that it just didn't need it for the way that she was telling the story well and that's how i walked away from this version of the story too i felt like ellen's interjections and she does interject to move time forward right were largely unnecessary for me and an interruption of the story right that that I'm I just when I get into the story we come back as a pivot using the the com- fireside conversation to pivot the story in a new direction and I felt like that is a uh that's a bit of a shorthand that I just think was a distraction for the story as as told I think there are other ways to move time forward in film and allegiance to the adaptation for that serves the book and and makes for an interesting to your point interesting lesson in perspectives that we don't get in the movie and because of that we don't need it right i don't think at any point the movie was attempting to assign more responsibility to ellen beyond just telling the story and moving it forward in terms of perspective right there's nothing at the end that feels like oh but ellen don't forget she's the ultimate inheritor and love child of all these people right like that there's no twist that that feels like ellen gets like deserves to have been telling the story yeah we have talked about framing devices in other uh films that we have uh discussed over over the years and in fact i think in in one of our member pre-show chats we probably also talked about some some of the framing devices in films that worked or didn't work for us i'm sure this is definitely one of them where it largely feels like an appendage that it it's worked for the book for the reasons that it it works and that makes it kind of part of the challenge of being adapted and here it just ends up feeling like something that they put in because they wanted to have that that uh feel of the adaptation and it just doesn't feel necessary at all i agree with you completely yeah interesting uh okay so w- then we need to talk about our man Weiler. Ah, uh, William Weiler. We're going to be talking about him uh, a number of times this season. In fact, our, our, I think our very next series that we'll be uh, discussing, we've got another uh, another Weiler film. So it should be fun as we talk about the best years of our lives. Are you looking at his IMDb page right now? Well, I'm looking at I'm looking deep deeper into it, and I was just trying to remember what else we've talked about of his. And I know the Little Foxes was one. Has there been anything else we've talked about with him? 
I don't, none of that matters because I would like you to play with me the IMDb game, Andy. That's right. I've turned the tables. It's now your turn to tell me the big four out of his 76 directorial credits William Wyler is known for without scrolling up on your page. Can you, Andy, tell me what IMDb's algorithm thinks William Wyler is best known for? Uh, Is Wuthering Heights on there? It is not. Okay. Controversy already. What about Mrs. Miniver? Nope. Best Years of Our Lives. You got number one. Okay. Um, you only get one more shot. I mean, really, if we're giving you four. Oh, come on. Well, uh, Ben-Hur, probably. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember what else he's done. Everybody likes to go to Italy. Let's see. Roman Holiday. There you go. Can you tell me decade? That might... Uh, the 50s. 50s. Okay, because I was going to... Because I was thinking maybe I would end it with Funny Girl, but um, that's not the no, 50s. No, but it, says it, so. shares, it shares an actor from uh, Roman Holiday. Oh, God. What else did he do? I'm guessing that's Gregory Peck then. Show enough. I can't think of what else he did with Gregory Peck. Oh, Andy, a New England sea captain in the 1880s arrives at his fiancée's sprawling Texas ranch, where he becomes embroiled in a feud between two families over a valuable patch of land. That's right. It's the big country. Gotcha. Never seen it. Yes. Outstanding. 7.8 on the IMDb scale. 7.8. So, that's William Wyler. Does this feel like a William Wyler film, right? Every one of those movies on the big four has a it just feels to me like a uh like William Wyler's fingerprint is all over it right to me it it feels like it it just has a tonal approach and a scope of a movie and all of those movies i think you could say are large movies uh in some way shape or form even roman holiday is is still has a big scope and scale visually on screen how does this movie compare in the annals of william wyler movies to you well, it's interesting because Weiler is one of those directors who people say doesn't have a real signature because he would kind of spread himself across such a variety of genres and styles and everything. And so, you know, he is one of those great directors who I think makes great films. And, you know, I don't know, I guess what I would say when I watch this, the thing that that makes it stand out for me is just the way that he works the camera with Greg Toland, like the way that he crafted this story and told and chose to tell the story. It makes it feel epic in big, even though it's uh, not as big as something like Ben-Hur. But I guess that's to, to some extent, I would say that's what makes me like when I watch this film and I see some of the way that he chose to craft the story, I, I would say I can see that that's the Weiler side of it yeah i get that i it's it's funny though when you think about uh let's say modern directors like christopher nolan i i see oppenheimer and i see christopher nolan written all over that movie right you don't have to tell me that christopher nolan made that movie that movie has his his visual sensibility all over it based on everything else that i've seen martin scorsese same kind of thing steven spielberg same kind of thing. And Spielberg, Spielberg loves Weiler, but always said he didn't have a distinct style, as you say. Spielberg also claims he feels like that himself, too. I think Spielberg is wrong. I think Spielberg has a distinct style. He has a fingerprint to the same extent that I think that I think Weiler does. Like, I, you, it's, it's dogs playing poker. I don't know art, but I know what I like. And 
that is that's the experience I get with some of these films of of Weiler's, just as with Spielberg and with Scorsese and with Nolan, that they just have a sensibility about them that feels like their stamp. Looking back to more his era, I would say that there's probably a strong comparison with Weiler and somebody like John Ford, who is another director yes. who I think makes strong films and has a particular style, but it is kind of also a a style that is not as overt as as some others. And so I think that's why they definitely feel like a director who's bringing a lot to the films that they put together, but isn't isn't necessarily as apparent. And maybe that's maybe that's why people say that about them. I think so. And I think, you know, I mean, God, uh, you know, okay. so John Ford was in an era where, you know, he's making a lot of cowboy movies, but he also like just feels like and maybe that's the that's the reason I keep coming back to fingerprint rather than style, because, it, it you know, I can't necessarily put my put my finger specifically on tools and techniques that they do, though. I'm sure there are plenty of YouTube videos that actually do just that. To me, it's the feeling I get when I watch a John Ford movie that allows me to say more often than not, without knowing this is a John Ford movie. This is a William Wyler movie. I can figure that out based on on the tone. And uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely looking forward to chatting about him in our next uh, series when we get to the best years of our lives. That should be a fun one to talk about. Yeah, that's uh, 46. 1946. So that's our yeah. that's next our next series. Our Very 46. next series. It'll be the 1947 yeah. Academy Awards for Best uh, Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, outstanding. Yeah. What now? As far as the the scripting of this, though, I guess it was fairly complicated. Obviously, it was from Bronte's novel, but then Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht wrote the screenplay. John Huston came on board to do some uh, some rewrites. But uh, from what I read, is he's just like, why adapt this? It's perfect the way it is, which probably doesn't help when you're trying to. <laughs> make a movie and it's a kind of completely different beast in the process of adapting it i know you didn't finish it but i mean are do you feel like you're getting enough of these characters to say i understand at least what the you know the crux of this story and these characters yeah i think so and i think you know so much of the adaptation is not what you jam in there but what you cut and you know i started with yeah they cut like entire members of the family by that token those were some smart decisions for making a movie that's not seven hours long right like this was um i, I think it is an efficient film as a result of of what they did i think the way they manage aging the characters from their childhood to adulthood i think worked largely for me um and those decisions in the script actually felt sort of advantageous to building the the trio of the romance at the end again some of the deathbed drama um so yeah i thought it, i thought they made at least made some smart decisions in the adaptation if as long as you know Houston's wrong, and they are going to go ahead and adapt this perfect book. Yeah, I think they made some smart decisions. Did you come away feeling similar? Well, I, it, yeah, I mean, it is incredibly tricky to kind of do this. And I suppose in the scope of trying to figure out, well, we got to cut something and and just kind of eliminating that whole second part of the story, I suppose that makes sense. And I know in the scope of adaptations, which we'll talk about a little later, 
it has been adapted a lot, a number of times as miniseries on TV. And I suppose in the scope of miniseries, that's where you have that opportunity to really kind of play those two separate sides of this story opposite each other, you know? Yeah. Uh, Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht, do you have favorites from their catalog? There are some, uh, several that we've talked about, Notorious. They're very much, you know, studio writers of this era, right? You know, there's there's no way Ben Hecht walks away with 164 credits uh, without his his name being attached to a lot of studio churn in the 30s, 40s. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, I, I recently, as I've been watching a lot of films from 1939, as in kind of relation to this series, I did uh, watch Gunga Din recently, which is another story that they had worked on together you know it's a fun film for the era i can see why it's maybe not um, as popular these days with the way it depicts some uh, people in india but largely it's uh, you know it's a fun cary grant film i think he's uh, clearly they're having fun with it i you know as i look at uh at least charles MacArthur, i mean the front page for sure i've seen that and but I, I I don't know, I guess a lot less than I realized his girl Friday also like it's amazing how many of these yeah. come from uh, the front page. And and that he was Ben Hecht, you know, he was working with Ben Hecht on a lot of these. Right. So uh, beyond, you know, stagecoach, John Ford uh, for Ben Hecht, it's a wonderful world. Some like it hot, gone with the wind, contributing writer, uh, his girl Friday. Um, lots of movies in the 30s and 40s that are super classics, uh, but oh, so many I haven't seen. So, so many I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, but in, in the scope of this story, I mean, it's interesting because uh, it's novels are different as far as like protagonists and everything. But in the film version, would you say that Heathcliff is our protagonist or is Kathy our protagonist? Who are we? Who are we largely following here? So it's it's kind of a good question. I think I think it's Heathcliff, right? I mean, Heathcliff is the is the character that you know. It feels like everything rotates around. Although there's a chunk where he's gone. Remember, he like goes overseas off to America for a while and then comes back. Yeah, not for that long. And the whole time I'm waiting for him to come back. <laughs> so even though he's not on screen, I'm still thinking about him. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say Heathcliff is the protagonist of the story. I mean, he's the one we're still following after Kathy dies, as we kind of see uh, how things unfold afterward. Uh, but it's it's a tricky one to figure that out as far as like how to adapt that in the book, you know, and, and they I think they do a decent job of of making it uh, Heathcliff. But I mean, you know, we've never talked about Merle Oberon on the, on the show before. Um, I really enjoyed watching her performance here as Kathy. Have, have you seen many Merle Oberon performances? Do you like her as an actress? Well, I like her very much in this movie. I have to say, like, I, it wasn't until, you know, I started clicking through credits to, you know, for this show that I realized I've, I've seen her in some things and I did not make a connection that I was watching a, you know, a film with Merle Oberon in it. Right. One of her top four is a Scarlet Pimpernel, 1934. I've seen that for sure. She's got 60 uh, credits and I haven't seen I just haven't seen much. My the the challenge was that I I found myself really liking in terms of the sisters really liking Isabel the Geraldine Fitzgerald like more than than Kathy and so you know I uh, while I like Merle 
she was wonderful. I, I found myself more paying more attention to Isabella by the time we got to the second half of the movie. As I look through Merle's credits, I realize this is the only thing of hers that I have ever seen. I, I, I found her fairly uh, mesmerizing, though. Like, there's a draw to her. So I, she's somebody I definitely would like to see more. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Geraldine Fitzgerald definitely stands out as Isabella, but I think also that's kind of, as we were saying earlier, I think largely because she's kind of designed as an audience surrogate and she's easier for us to connect to because of the way that she kind of adapts to the characters. Yeah, for sure. And she, boy, I mean, she has been around for a long time. She ended up with 91 credits all the way through her last film in 1991. You know, all of these folks had a career, but I think hers might be the longest. That's possible. You know, she's definitely one of those interesting people who's had such a variety in her career to the point where she was uh, like, wasn't she Dudley Moore's grandma in Arthur? In Arthur, too. In both of them, yeah. Or was it Arthur in both of them? Yeah, yeah, she's his grandma. She was in Poltergeist, too, so you just saw her in that over in uh, your conversation about sitting in the dark for sure um so yeah very very popular the other person that i wanted to bring up was flora robeson who plays ellen the uh the maid between the two different houses and it's because uh i just found this to be a funny little bit of casting trivia she uh is in this film with Lawrence olivier and in 1981 they would both end up being in clash of the titans where of course he is zeus and she is one of the stygian witches that is it. I can't believe we haven't talked about that movie on this show. <laughs> it just cracks me up. Like, uh, the way that careers, uh, you know, weave and everything. For sure. And uh, and David Niven, what's funny is there was a scene where we uh, Weiler asked David Niven, and I'm not sure which scene, but I'm guessing it's when Kathy dies, but he asked him if he would uh, cry, and he's like, oh, no, I have a no-crying clause in my contract. <laughs> and Weiler's like, you're kidding me, come on, seriously. And sure enough, they pulled up his contract. Yep, he would not cry <laughs> contract contractually in films. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so funny. Wow. You know, that's like, there is some deep psychological trauma that causes somebody to do that. Like, there's some fear that David Niven has about crying and masculinity. And I think that's that's worth thinking. I would watch that movie. I want to watch David Niven in therapy. <laughs> would that they had made that movie. Yeah. We haven't talked about him much. I, we talked about him in the bishop, The Bishop's Wife early on. Is there anything else we've talked about with him? Yeah. Murder by Death. Yep. Murder by Death. Let me, I'm I'm opening pages. I have watched a lot of him lately as I've been, again, going through films from 1939. I, I find him a lot of fun to watch. And then, I, you know, I also just watched uh, A Matter of Life and Death, uh, which he is also in. And, uh, you know, he's just, he's just a, a great actor. He's just somebody who's very, very fun to watch. He really is. And he's, he's one of those that um, he is, Interesting, entertaining, and so charming. I've seen, I think, a lot of David Niven. Um, you know, as I scroll through here, it's, you know, practically every other movie. Uh, you know, he's one that I, I would love to do a series on him down the road someday. I think he he's fantastic. Well, he's one of those actors that when you're watching him in a role like here, where he's playing this kind of like this pompous, rich neighbor, he works so well. 
You know, he fits perfectly in that type of role. And, uh, you know, I think that's something over the course of his career, like he ended up working so well as playing kind of like stuffy British people like that just in my head when I think of David Niven, my brain just goes to kind of that stuffy British person kind of the representation (laughs) of the elite and maybe it's because of something like around the world in 80 days because uh phileas fogg always kind of carried that same air you know yeah for sure yeah 111 credits that what i'm seeing there 111 acting credits busy 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 well we have a lot to choose from pink panther's got to be on the list oh yes oh yes cinematography greg toland um yeah I, i feel like there's a lot to talk about with Greg Toland when he jumps into working with, in just a couple years after this, with Orson Welles in Citizen Kane because of the way that they chose to shoot that film and everything. But I think, like, as I was watching this, and I've seen his, you know, a number of his films from 1939, as I've been kind of looking at all these, his, like, the way that he moves his camera, the way that he frames his camera, like, he is, he's working on capturing so much more in the frame than you see in a lot of films of this era. And it's just exciting to see what he's bringing here because, like, there were just, there were some just fantastic moving camera shots through this film that worked. And just like the depth of field in, in some of these wide shots that we have and the way they choose to, have some scenes that are much wider than you would normally get. I just, I was very excited to kind of see this film. It was just like the cinematography was stunning. What did you think of Greg Toland and the work he brought? It, it's super luscious. And I think, you know, especially when we have establishing shots of the property itself, anytime we're, we're kind of locked in the moors is it's haunting. He makes really great transitions from outside, like from the way the film is captured outside to the way it's captured inside, particularly Wuthering Heights, which is a, a beaten down sort of aging property over years. Like we get that it, it is, it's failing its upkeep as the, as the movie goes on. And I think it's, um, he uses that very well um it is it's really what you know when when you think about black and white like just it it is luscious luscious use of camera living in black and white um it it was fun to revisit on a slightly larger than uh average screen um uh, he I, I think particularly because the sets themselves, I think, were very versatile. Right. Like I, I didn't get a I didn't get a sense of sense that we were working just in a straight proscenium. Like it really, to your point, it felt like they were moving the camera around space. Yeah. M- more than just, you know, shooting inside a three walled room. And using in the space, not just the black and white well, but the dark and light. Like, yeah, I remember there was that scene where. Uh, uh, Heathcliff is talking to Ellen and uh, suddenly Kathy is at the door and Heathcliff goes and, and hides behind the wall in the next room, but it's dark. It's like super murky dark where he's hiding and you see him there because of a lightning flash. And then later, as after he overhears what Kathy's talking about and that she's going to marry Edgar and everything, you have that lightning flash again and he's gone now. And it's just like the way that they would kind of structure all of this and use kind of the cinematography to help tell the story. I just it was it was really uh, it was just beautiful. 
I had not made the connection that it was Toland on Citizen Kane. I think that's really interesting. Um, the, you know, Citizen Kane to me has such a different visual style, right? You talk about fingerprints. I, I don't know that I would have been able to tell you that these two guys uh, or that this guy did these two films. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts on him? Uh, do, you, do you have a lot of other Toland in your catalog? Obviously, besides the bishop's wife. As I was saying, like there, there were a few that, uh, that I was seeing over the course of 1939. Like the other two films that he did that year, They Shall Have Music and Intermezzo, both had a lot of moments in them that I was just, I felt were so much bigger. And They Shall Have Music is just like a story about like, it's like this, this, um, music program for homeless kids or or kids who can't afford to pay for music lessons to kind of get them into music and everything. And it was a fairly simple, sweet story that I quite enjoyed. But just like, I, and I was just taken aback by some of the beautiful like booms and, and stuff. And I'm like, God, this is just really uh, interesting camera movement that I wouldn't have expected in a story like this. But and, and then go, oh, well, of course, it's Greg Toland. Of course, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Grapes of Wrath is uh, he does the very next year, which is a fantastic adaptation of Steinbeck. That is uh, definitely a beautiful film to look at. And, and then we'll talk about him again when we in our next series with Weiler again, because the two of them worked together quite a bit in the best years of our lives. So I think if there's any parallel, like when I, you know, particularly when I'm thinking about Citizen Kane, like there's just a lot in the way Kane is handled as a character over the course of the film. It's been a little bit since I've seen it, but his largesse on screen, capturing him low, capturing him long, capturing those contrasts in between light and dark, uh, really parallels, I think, the treatment of Heathcliff, particularly early on in the movie when we're still in the framing device. Heathcliff is presented as this angry sort of, uh, you know, giant character. The camera's low on him. He stands up over the fire and, and we get this, this image of him as, kind of this monster of solitude as he's in the house. We learn that that's not really the case after, um, you know, after over the course of a lot of the movie, we, where we get to see how he became this way. But I, I do think that there is something to be said for camera treatment of these characters, uh, like Kane, like Heathcliff, as larger than life uh, in the frame that works very, very well. That feels Tolandy. Well, and also I think a lot of that came from from Wells. I think the two of them just worked really well together to kind of craft uh, that story and, and to do a lot of really unique things in the way that that story got told. But I still think, like, when you look at what he does with Weiler here, and again, I think they worked together maybe six times, something like that. Uh, I, I feel like there's definitely a sense of director and cinematographer who click and find a great uh, language together to tell their stories. Yes. The other big technical side of this film that I just am absolutely in love with is the music. Alfred Newman's score, uh, particularly like Kathy's theme, I just like it has kind of all the haunting romance in it that I think works exceptionally in the story. Did you did you click much with uh, Newman's score for this one? Yeah, it didn't. I have to say it didn't jump out at me as I was watching it. I, it makes me want to go back because you have great taste in scores. I don't know why it, it, I sort of feel like I missed some of this stuff, but I, I don't know that I have much to comment on the music. 
I mean, it definitely like builds to the great swells and everything. Like toward the end, after Heathcliff dies, and then you've got this meeting of him and Kathy's spirits on the moors, and as the way they kind of walk off to heaven, it's very romantic. It's very, it has kind of that tragic romance to it that I think works well for the nature of the story, and you know, definitely a little more of kind of the that. Uh, I guess you could almost say that was definitely a little bit more of the happy ending that uh, this was uh, Samuel Goldwyn was wanting for the story. I think what I read is that he actually went and shot that uh, ending. He wanted a happier ending than what Weiler was delivering him. And so after the production was over, he went and had that ending shot with um, some doubles of his two <laughs> leads uh, to to put that onto the film, which... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I but again, Wiley, Wiley Wyler. I, I would say that that's part of the reason why this worked better for me than the book did. Yeah. So it's funny that uh, the way things work out. Oh, well, uh, any last thoughts about anything with this film? I don't. I don't. I'm glad we watched it. I'm, I'm curious how it, it plays in the overall arc of 1939 history. Uh, as we we talk about these films. Well, should we talk about the awards right now? Uh, Sure. I have a list on our letterbox of this entire series, these four films that we've done, plus the other six that we have talked about in the past. So yeah, if you go to uh, the Next Reels page, we do have a list specifically for this series. The 10 films nominated, Gone with the Wind, of course, won, Dark Victory, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights. I guess first question, you know, we should also mention in our 1939 series we also talked about the roaring 20s only angels have wings the women and the hound of the baskervilles and then of course there's countless other 1939 films that that uh, we have watched i of course have been plowing through films from 1939 yes and i think now i have probably watched how many i have to look now how many films from 1939 have i now seen let me just look (laughs) According to Letterboxd, I have seen 59 films from 1939 now. And I haven't heard a peep of Mid-Atlantic out of your mouth, Andy. That's remarkable. (laughs) So, you know, I guess the first question is, um, of those 10, if we didn't change a thing, what would you pick as your best picture? Not Gone with the Wind. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there uh, there are, uh, of the movies that I have rated, the one that is a five-star film <laughs> is Mr. Smith. I thought you gave Of Mice and Men five stars. Oh, I gave my, I, I haven't actually updated that yet because that's for... It hasn't released yet. You're right. I gave. I also gave Mice and Men five stars. It, succeeding at what it wanted to be of Mice and Men is five stars. I am not going to give Wuthering Heights... And five. I will say, I think you gave The Wizard of Oz five stars. I gave The Wizard of Oz five stars. I am validating that right now. So of the of the movies, the three movies that I have given five stars are <laughs> Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wizard of Oz, and Of Mice and Men. So one of those three I would put as best picture, and one of those three is not Gone with the Wind. So which one? Well, I don't know yet. You have to talk now. I'm thinking. I'm stewing. Well, it's uh, it's pretty easy for me. It's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I just, I think that film works exceptionally. I think in the scope of 
especially even today in the world of our politics, I think watching something like Mr. Smith goes to Washington gives a, a really interesting view and in kind of like aspirational politics, like how we like things to go. Like it's kind of like, you know, in the world of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Captain America represents like what we want America to be. And I think that's kind of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. We kind of want to see that our political system could actually have people like him who actually are able to stand up to the powers above him and still find ways to make things uh, work for the better. It's funny that you you frame it like that, because I think you could make the case that as a fable, Wizard of Oz does something similar, right? Like pulling back the proverbial curtain on that which is not authentic uh, is is similar to the mission in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, right? Like aspirationally, we have we individuals have power and agency to make change in the world and, and in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Both of those movies take on a similar thing from a different perspective. Both of those movies are larger in scope and scale than Of Mice and Men, so I think I'd knock Of Mice and Men out for me. But between those two, they're coming at, a, for me, a sim- similar ideology, and they're both done very, very well. I would probably lean with you on Mr. Smith if I'm, if I'm forced. Uh, because of the the final speech, like I, I just feel like he is he's so good individually standing up and doing what he needs to do to make change, and his innocence uh, as he learns the ropes of of Washington is is delightful to to watch on screen. So I think I would probably lean toward Mr. Smith, but I'm fascinated, but that both of those movies are are in this in this collection and are capturing the same sort of heart for me. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think I'm right there with you with the three, my three favorites of this list. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Of Mice and Men, The Wizard of Oz. I think they're all exceptional and absolutely rewatchable films. Yeah, me too. Are there any that you would, if you were given the chance, you would drop something out and replace it? I don't know that I'm equipped enough, certainly not as equipped as you are because of all the 1939 that you're watching. <laughs> I, I think you have to answer so that many, first. So many. Well, yeah. Because right now I watch this thing and I think uh, this is an able list of movies. Like, I, they're not all my favorites, but it's a capable list of movies that represent the the year. So what about you? And it, would, it's just, it is so interesting, though, because 1939 is often regarded as like, you know, Hollywood's greatest year and all this sort of stuff. And so it's funny when you look at these films, yes, I can see kind of this broad swath of stories across them. But at the same time, like if I were to pick a John Ford film, I likely would put on like young Mr. Lincoln before Stagecoach uh, that was done the same year. Like I, I found that film more affecting for me than Stagecoach. I absolutely would have loved to see uh, The Rules of the Game, uh, Jean Renoir's film on here. And I probably would drop something like Wuthering Heights and put on Rules of the Game. Ninochka, I I thought was a fun movie. That's that's one that I have not yet watched again, uh, whereas I've tried wa- rewatching some of the others. I'd like to rewatch Ninochka just to kind of see if it clicks a little more for me. But like, Something that I thought was like an exceptional film from the era was Destry Rides Again, another uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart film 
uh, another Western, but, uh, you know, absolutely one of my favorite films of the year. And the most surprising film, which, you know, this is one of those films where I would have a hard time picking this to put up on my list of best pictures, but um, Bachelor Mother was this uh, Ginger Rogers, David Niven comedy that was just so delightful. I had such a fun time. It was just sweet, romantic, and a fun story. I absolutely uh, would say that that's probably, while I wouldn't put it on the best picture list, I would say, it was probably one of my uh, favorite films of the year. So it's kind of funny to see like the way that it's just the way that things work, you know, I mean, but I'm looking 1939, my top 10 films are wizard of Oz. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, bachelor mother, Destry rides again, love affair, only angels have wings, rules of the game, dark victory, bow jest, first love. They shall have music when tomorrow comes. Um, and then rounding out just the the four and five stars, uh, Daybreak, a French film, the story of the last chrysanthemum, a Japanese film, and Young Mr. Lincoln. So, yeah. Interesting. I haven't seen Young Mr. Lincoln, but it sounds like that needs to be next on my list. I, I find it, I don't know, I just, I, it worked better for me than Stagecoach did as a John Ford film. But again, Stagecoach is another one that I owe a rewatch to. I think that, you know, culturally, aesthetically, Gone with the Wind is, is, stays on the list. It's just aging so poorly for me that it, it's hard to imagine, you know, you run it again. Uh, I, I have a hard time imagining that one does anything good but the, there's just such that epic scope i mean i can see why yeah, it's on here too because it's beautiful I mean, yeah there's there's so much and and watching the watching scarlet go from this spoiled little girl to this this woman who's you know fighting for her last chunk of land you know there there is a strong story there but it's just there's a lot of ick that comes along with it nowadays it's interesting, the movies that stick with me, though, it, you know, like I, I enjoyed my time with Love Affair and Goodbye, Mr. Chips. But I don't I'm, I don't I find myself looking at the move at the list and thinking, oh, I need to really process to remember what those were all about. Like they don't they don't stick. Not the way uh, something like Mr. Smith and Wizard of Oz and Mice and Men and even Stagecoach for me uh, sticks. Sure. So, yeah. Good year, though. Yeah. Good year. Lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. I feel it, in, in terms of rating relativism, even a three-star on one of these lists is extraordinary because it's in such good company. Yeah, although I will say it's amazing, like, watching as many films from 1939 as I have been watching lately. Like, I'm like, what is it about this movie or about this year that makes people say it's, like, the greatest year of Hollywood? Because I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's got its... Average movies, it's got its great movies, it's got its successful movies, it's got its not-so-successful movies, but, like, <laughs> there's nothing about it that says, oh, well, you know, this over 1938 or 1940, it's like, why? I guess, sure, Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz, two classics that remain classic, you know, is that why? I, it's, it's weird. And and Mr. Smith, like, mi these movies have transcended the the cultural norms right they still have things that we think about in them that have that represent other things mr smith goes to washington your entire speech on what that movie aspires to people still think about in politics today from 1939 so yeah i mean i see how how that that year particularly has echoes the thing that i that is interesting to your point is how these three or four films actually serve to buoy the rest of the year 
is interesting. That is the gift of of like blindness, like like you know, uh, cult, like just memory blindness. Like we just don't remember that the movies because it's been a long time since we watched them. Mr. Smith and Wizard of Oz, surely all the movies were great that year because those movies were so great that year. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that Hollywood really loves being able to have something like that to latch on to. Like 1939, what a great year for movies. You know, yeah, whether it's right. true or not, it's just it's yeah. the tagline that goes <laughs> along is. with the year now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, uh, well. All right. Uh, well, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Martin Puringer, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Hey, film fans, Andy here from The Next Reel. Can you believe we have recorded almost 700 episodes dissecting and discussing movies? It's a testament to our incredible community of listeners like you. Your support means the world to us, and one great way to show that support is by sporting some Next Reel merch. We've got shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, all featuring designs from movies we've covered on the show. Looking for a place to start? Grab a tee or hoodie with the Next Reel logo to rep your love of film. We've got our auteur theory design in there, along with our patient zero, plus many designs for movies we've discussed on the show. So head to thenextreel.com slash merch and grab some gear today. Every purchase helps us keep the mics hot for our weekly movie chats. And thanks as always for being part of the Next Reel community. All right, Andy, uh, this one I think is going to be a little bit tricky on sequels and remakes because there are 10,000 of them. Holy cow. Maybe not as many sequels, but certainly in the in the adaptations, I guess, is really probably the more apt term for this. It's crazy how many times it has been adapted. I mean, film-wise, 1920, this one from 1939, 1950, 1951, 1954, other uh, countries, other languages. But yeah, there's a variety. Um, on TV, 1948, 50, 53, 58, 59, 62, 98, 03, 04, 15. Uh, and then TV series or miniseries, 64, 67, 76, 78, 79, 2002, 2009, 2021. Tons of radio adaptations, three different operas, two different musical theater versions, five other regular theater versions, a 2011 graphic novel, and four other loose adaptations. It is clearly a story that people tap into because probably of the the heightened emotional journey that the characters take and the challenging book that Bronte wrote that makes people want to see if they can, you know, make their own version that sticks crazy and don't forget that hit kate bush song weathering heights and pat benatar weathering yeah, heights right i didn't even mention my those. goodness yep i look at a list like this and i think what is it i having just watched this movie i cannot fathom why it has connected so deeply 
with enough people to make this movie time and time again. And for those people to be able to sell their vision of it time and time again. And for the people they sell it to, to say, yeah, I'll pay for that again. I I don't understand it. Well, again, I, I think it just goes to why the book is viewed as this classic. This It's, it's a story about turbulence in kind of this very darkly gothic romance world. And I think there is just a lot of, uh, you know, people are drawn to kind of that emotion. And, I, I you know, it's very heightened. I, again, I, I didn't connect with it, but clearly a lot of people do. Well, I guess, yeah, maybe it is. It's the Frankenstein of romance, right? Just keep making it. The monster <laughs> is romance, Andy. That's what I'm saying. The monster was romance all along. All right. Well, we've talked about uh, the big awards discussion, but how did this one do specifically at awards season? Yeah, this had seven wins with seven other nominations. At the Oscars, uh, we just mentioned Best Picture and how this lost to Gone with the Wind. Laurence Olivier was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Robert Donat and Goodbye Mr. Chips, which we have talked about kind of being the controversial win because it was a split between... Uh, I think largely was it Olivier and uh, and Stewart, and it ended up kind of surprising people that Donut took it. Geraldine Fitzgerald uh, received her Oscar nomination for supporting actress for this, but lost to Hattie McDaniel. Gone with the Wind. Art direction lost to Gone with the Wind. Director uh, lost to Victor Fleming for Gone with the Wind. Music original score lost to The Wizard of Oz. Uh, best writing screenplay lost to Gone with the Wind, and the one win for this film was the cinematography Black and White, which um, you know Toland beat out the only other nominee, which of course was Stagecoach. At the National Film Preservation Board in 2007, this was one of the 25 films added that year. At the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, this actually beat Mr. Smith and Gone with the Wind for Best Film. And at the National Board of Review, it was one of the top 10 films of the year. Uh, Fitzgerald won this for Best Acting and Dark Victory, and Olivier won for Best Acting. And a fun one, the Photoplay Awards, <laughs> I guess the Photoplay Magazine, they would do Best Performances of the Month. Merle Oberon and Laurence Olivier uh, got that award for the month of June, 1939. <laughs> Performances of the month. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Well, were you able to rustle up your uh, spreadsheets to find anything about the budget, Andy? Again, like this period is just so difficult to find great information. Uh, as I said last week, I couldn't find anything. Uh, what I did find, this opened April 13th, 1939, opposite the story of Alexander Graham Bell. I also found that it earned $624,643 domestically during a re-release April 7th, 1989 to celebrate its 50th anniversary. But unfortunately, that is all I could find. Hmm. All right. Well, there you have it. That's Wuthering Heights. The Heights, they are a Wuthering. And uh, I'm glad we talked about it. I'm glad we watched it. I think I will. After this conversation, I'm going to finish the book. I promise. All right. I just need to put put a pin in that. Um, but I, it does. It is solidly representative of the film. I get that. You know, it's beautiful. Uh, it just wasn't made for me. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. John Cromwell's Anna and the King of Siam kicking off the next series, as we mentioned earlier, 1947 Academy Award Best Adapted Screenplay nominees. How old shall you be? 
You do not look like a scientific person for teaching of school. How old shall you be? I am 150 years old, Your Majesty. for me to do and I said so positively oh Lord you will have to forgive your mother I said we'd have a home of our own and here I brought you straight into a harem. what does that mean mother he asked me and I do gladly whatever he wished it is strange he did not tell you this. He didn't give me any answer at all, I thought. Then you did talk to him. And it is you he listened to. If I am not first in this place, what is left for me? Great importance. It's Lady Topton, Your Majesty. Is there nothing dishonorable to me that is secret here? How shall you like if I make you watch what I shall do? Are you going to read that one? No, I don't think I am. We should each try to at least read one of the books from this upcoming series. Okay. All right. Well, I'll see how easy I can get it, how quickly. I don't know if I could get through it. Cool. All right, Andy, it's time for Letterboxd. But you can see all of our ratings. Nextworld.com slash Letterboxd. You are Letterboxd.com slash Soda Creek Film. I am Letterboxd.com slash Pete Wright. And you can follow us over there if you are uh, Letterboxd uh, lovers. So, Andy, what are you going to do? I. Uh, definitely enjoy this more than the book or that 2011 adaptation. Um, there's something about just the way they chose to focus on the romance and kind of the tragedy of it that worked for me. It still isn't my favorite, but I'm going to say three stars and a heart. That's funny. As somebody who likes it, I think, less than you, that's exactly where I was going to land. Because it's not like I don't understand that it's a fine film. It's a fine exercise in filmmaking. Uh, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Are you three stars and a heart or three stars and no yeah, heart? Yeah, I'll give it a heart. I'll give it a heart. I, it's right in the middle. Like, it's, it's right in the middle. I can appreciate it. I don't love it. Right in the middle would actually be two and a half, but I know you're a peak. I don't no do half, half stars, stars Andy. Right? I don't do half stars. That is a pox. Well, how, okay, so, but that's interesting. Mentality. When you say out of five stars, it's right in the middle. How do you, how do you dance the line between two stars versus three stars then? Because either one of those technically is right in the middle for you. 
Yeah, I know. It is a dance in the line. I think for this one, it's Toland. I think talking about Toland pushes it up to A3 instead of down to A2. Gotcha. Okay. There's always something. Uh, remember, you can check out all of our stuff over at thenextreel.com slash letterboxed. So what did you think about Wuthering Heights? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. I, I feel like I just want to start naming my properties. I feel like that is a a, a vastly underused trope. I, Kira and I have talked about this, and she won't let me get like a plaque. I I want to name our properties. For a while, I just wanted to name our house the right house and put a big like West Wing style placard <laughs> with yeah. just a suburban house embossed on it. and <laughs> just says the right house in, <laughs> you know, White House font. Uh-huh. I thought that would have been a funny joke. She doesn't appreciate that. Oh. I know. That's what I said. Oh. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that. What would you name your property? That's what I was going to say. I'm going to have to think about that because I actually don't know. I'm going to have to stew on it a little bit to to try to decide uh, what would make sense. It's like we're not weathering here. If anything, I feel like it needs to relate to sun and baking and, and heat. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And maybe cactuses. Would you throw a cactus in there? Like Yeah. I don't know. Like the prick the prickly heart. <laughs> you, could, you could tell your tell your friends, hey, come on back to the hot swarrow for <laughs> just call it the hot swarrow with the Indian ant. <laughs> we'll call it the prickly heart. The prickly heart. The prickly heart. Yeah. Prickly heart. Yeah. All right. All right. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. How did you how did you approach the Letterbox machine this week? Um I went high and I also ended up going a little more uh, straightforward and serious. Oh, okay. Well, go. I'd like to see yours. Seriously. I did a five star by Leo Cart, five stars in a heart. And I think this just ties into uh, my feeling about the adaptations that I've seen, at least, and uh, our conversation about William Wyler, Leo Cart says, yeah, maybe this William Wyler guy is the greatest to ever do it. Oh, that is, that's short and sweet. Short and sweet. The greatest to ever do it. Makes me think maybe I don't need to watch any other adaptations. <laughs> Pretty much. I think we could put a fork in it. I have a three and a half star from Megan, who says, look. I'm not one who finds Wuthering Heights romantic. In fact, to me, it's decidedly unromantic. But I'm woman enough to admit that he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same, goes off. That is a banger of a line. (laughs) When there's one line that totally rocks your world in the movie, that's worth a review. Here, It's worth a review. Here, here. Although I do appreciate lacked interpretive dancing, four stars. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Letterboxd.